Blog Talk Radio. This is Sam Maxwell, and you are here with a Metzine podcast, and we are so thankful that you are. Uh, and, you know, without further ado, let's just get right to it. It's been a couple weeks since you joined us, and uh, I, uh, I am here with my uh, uh, esteemed guest, who we will get to uh, very, very shortly. But first, I'm going to go all the way down to Bensonhurst and bring on one of my co-conspirators, and that is Mike LeColant in Brooklyn. How you doing? I'm doing well, Sam. How you doing, brother? I am all right. I'm uh, just, you know, tucked away in the woods right now and, and just enjoying the upstate air and, and the foliage that's going on out there. Uh, and, and in the tri-state as well, we're going to go all the way down to Jersey City uh, for our, our guest tonight who has a new book out uh, that he is the uh, editor of, an anthology uh, called The New York Mets in Popular Culture, uh, Critical Essays. And uh, without further ado, that's David Krell. Welcome to a Metzian podcast once more. Thank you very much, Sam. So let's let's get right into it. There's there's not a crazy amount of stuff going on, obviously, with the playoffs, and we're waiting on Steve Cohen, which is we will get into that. But let's get right into it with your book. Give us your shameless plug and tell the audience one where they can find it, uh, and two what it what it is about. Well, it's a look at the Mets that you've never seen before. This covers so many different areas of popular culture. There will be a surprise on every page for even diehard fans. So we have an article, or an essay rather, about the Mets references in the West Wing. We have a biography of Mr. Met, and that's a very interesting essay by Marty Lesner, who's a friend of mine. He covers the rivalry, for lack of a better word, between Mr. Met and the Philly Fanatic. Marty's a, a Phillies fan. Matt Rothenberg, who you guys know was the uh, research librarian at the Baseball Hall of Fame, he contributed an essay about the Mayor's Trophy game. For fans of a certain age, they will remember there was a time before interleague play where the Mets and Yankees played each other. It was very exciting. It was an exhibition. It was a novelty. We have Joan Payson's art philanthropy in here. We have Mets in movies. We have an article, I keep saying article, an essay about sports phone that I wrote. And the list goes on and on. So it won't be the traditional Mets book, but I think any Mets fan will chuckle, smile, laugh when they read these essays. Uh, that, that's interesting that you're mentioning about the West Wing, too, uh, before I go to Mike for any questions he has on it. Um, I'm wondering whether any of those Mad Men references uh, got into, in, uh, came into play, uh, because it was interesting, you know, as Mad Men went on, there seemed to pick up some of those Mets references. I think one of the essays covers a, 
is more like a global view of the Mets in pop culture, Mets in movies and television and so forth. It might be mentioned in there, but there was nobody who zeroed in on it. I do remember one episode where John Hamm as Don Draper is drunk and Freddie takes him to a ball game. Uh, he just says, we're going to go to a, we'll tell them we're going to a ball game, we're going to a Mets game, and let's just get you out of the office. And there was a pennant in Lane Price's office, an orange Mets pennant. Right, exactly. And he drunkenly talks uh, things about the Mets at some point. It, it was a right. funny, funny scene. Um, and uh, uh, Mike, I'm going to go to you now uh, for any questions that, that you have. Uh, I, I do have a question. Uh, first, a couple of comments. Uh, from what I've gathered so far, this is a, a, a fascinating compilation of, a, as you say, uh, different this from different people. Uh, anything Joan Payson it just can't help but being endearing. And uh, like we spoke before the show, your piece on Sports Phone. Uh, <laughs> I, I have a big smile on my face. That, that was like jumping into the time machine. Uh, but my question is, you know, you have uh, quite a list of contributors to this work. How did this all come about? You said you were friends with one, and I'm sure you're friends with others. Uh, but there's quite a list of people here, some I recognize, uh, some I'm going to familiarize myself with. But uh, how did you get all these people under one umbrella and, and create this work? Well, I had done a similar anthology called The New York Yankees in Popular Culture. And towards the end of that, I talked to my editor at McFarland, the publisher, and we had talked about different projects going forward. And we talked about the Red Sox. We talked about the Cubs. And I said, gee, I, I can't do a Red Sox book or a Cubs book without doing a Mets book first. I just did the Yankees. I think I need a companion book, and it's got to be the Mets. So I put a, what's called a call for papers announcement on the University of Pennsylvania website, and that's where academics go to find opportunities to publish their research. I recruited some people that I knew, uh, people that contributed to the Yankees book, and I found a couple of people on my own, never heard of them, never knew them, but just out of Googling, I found Deborah Bach, who's a curator at the New York Historical Society, and I found that she had curated an exhibit that involved Rheingold beer. And I knew that I wanted some kind of article about a beer sponsor, whether it was Budweiser in the 80s or Schaefer in the 70s or Rheingold in the 60s. I, I wanted something. So I approached her and I laid it out. I said, you don't need to be a diehard baseball fan. I need a beer historian. I need somebody who can t talk about the genesis of the brand and how it links to the Mets and talk about the lead up to the sponsorship and how that happened. Why were they the first beer sponsor? So Deborah's article, I keep saying article, Deborah's essay was really, really instructive in you know, illustrating that, that timeline. And it's something that fans who grew up in the 50s and 60s will really it will really resonate with them because they'll remember the Miss Rheingold beauty contests. They'll remember the Rheingold jingle and the Rheingold sign in center field at the polo grounds. And we had some other folks that were introduced to me. Jermaine King is a professor down at Johnson C. Smith University.
in North Carolina. Well, he came to me through a mutual friend, one of the one of the contributors to the Yankees book, and Jermaine pitched an article on the Mets and hip hop. And immediately I thought, no, the Yankees and hip hop. And we talked, and he said, you're saying that because of Jay Z, right? I said, yeah, Jay Z's always wearing that Yankees hat. And Jermaine said, I'm going to show that the Mets and Queens have as strong a connection, if not stronger, than the Yankees and the Bronx to hip-hop. So he did this wonderful job at synthesizing the genesis of the hip-hop genre and then explaining exactly what he set out to do, the, the connection between the genre and the Mets. Where else are you going to find a, a book with this kind of diversity of topics. Everything from Joan Payson's philanthropy in the art world and hospitals to hip-hop to the West Wing to Casey Stengel marketing the team to the 19th Century Mets to Dave Kingman's icon status. There is something here for everybody. And I, I am firm and I, am, I will stand on my statement that there will be surprises that even diehard fans We'll go, we'll go, wow, I didn't know that. That's really cool. And if I may, That's great. Uh, the, the part about hip-hop, uh, that, that is indeed yeah. a history. That is yeah. not folklore. That is indeed a history and the rivalry. If I may give away a small part of this, the rivalry yeah. between Queens and Bronx, oh, yeah. uh, legend, legend, legendary stuff there. Uh, knocked it out of mm. the park on that one. Yeah, well, Jermaine uh, had explained in the essay how hip-hop started at a party in the Bronx. But as you go through the essay and you realize the different stars of the hip-hop genre and how they're either from Queens or they reference the Mets, it it really was an eye-opener because that's the kind of stuff we need in the Society for American Baseball Research. It's the kind of thing we need in Sabre articles and Sabre presentations. We need stuff about art, about comic books, about broadcasting, about other areas of popular culture. As you guys well know, Sam and Mike, it's a passion of mine. And we get a lot of the other stuff, don't we? We get the statistics. And we have an essay here by two gentlemen, Scott and Doug, who, uh, Scott Dowdy and Doug Jordan, who talk about the Mets pitchers being underrated in the 70s. And I think that was important. And Charlie Vassalero goes into a little bit of statistical detail regarding Dave Kingman. But there's a, a, a more holistic view of baseball, and there, there's certainly a, uh, an opportunity for scholars and historians to talk about it because it doesn't get talked about enough, in my, in my humble opinion. And, and this I also is, this think is why we great. had these conversations. I, I also think it's great that uh, – Mr. Bill Lamb was able to revisit the 19th century Metropolitans and lay down the foundation of everything that was to come. Well, right. Bill Lamb did that, and I, he said, what about the 19th century Mets? I said, go for it. We should know the namesake. We should know a little bit of history. People should know when they pick up this book where the name Metropolitans comes from. So he did a great job with that one. Hmm. Uh, it's just, it's outstanding. And, and especially the hip hop stuff. First of all, you know, I even think about the, uh, the first pitches and the fact that like 50 has gotten kind of more screen time 
uh, in his Mets uniform, in his Mets outfit, right. throwing that bad pitch. But Nas right. has repped the Mets constantly uh, right. with, with hip-hop. And another thing, too, is I, I before Five Points was closed down, before Five Points was torn down, uh, I got a great shot of some, some uh, Mets graffiti that uh, I think it was 2011, and it was April 2011. And, it, you know, it was a, a part of it that constantly changed over and over again. And I guess somebody had drawn it for the opening of the season. But, I mean, right. I, you, you certainly, whether it's the Bronx or, or Queens, uh, especially those, you know, give Brooklyn its props too, of course. But, but you know, you, you think of graffiti and hip-hop, uh, the the co- the combination of those two art forms coming up together, and the trains, the train yards in the Bronx and the train yards in Queens. I mean that that seemed to and, and Mike, you can probably speak to this uh, a little bit better uh, when it comes to the Brooklyn side of things because you were around at the time, you were growing up in all of that. So so go ahead w- with the the Brooklyn connection. Well, you know, I, I I don't want to limit it to Brooklyn. It's New York City culture. Uh, yeah. it, it's the urban side of it. it it's uh, it's fascinating art. It, it's a fascinating uh, endeavor that these artists undertake. Some risky. Uh, some are commissioned. Uh, so you know, I. <laughs> Bringing it up and trying to encompass everything in a few words just doesn't lend justice to to the whole uh, culture in what is graffiti. Uh, and you're right. There is Five Points was an excellent place where the confluence of Mets baseball and graffiti in the city uh, on the street level and the fandom all came together. Uh, there was a lot of pride in the work that went on over at Five Points, and there's a lot of pride in Mets fandom. So uh, there's there's a there's a, a gorilla glue bond there uh, between the streets and what goes on uh, on the, on the, on the baseball diamond. Well, this is excellent. And, and um, I, we're going to get more into this book in another podcast, ladies and gentlemen, but we urge you to go out and get a copy. So you are privy to everything that we're going to be talking about. Obviously we're not going to give away too much, but we're, we're going to have these stories to talk about and it, it's going to be excellent. So uh, appreciate you, coming back when we're able to do that, David. And people can get it on, on Amazon. They should go to Amazon if they want to get the, uh, get the book and you can get it on Kindle nook or a hard copy, whatever you prefer. And, and, and by all means, please reiterate the title and, and everything about it. Pardon me. I said, please take a moment and reiterate the title and uh, everything about oh. it. And if there's any more details, we should be known. Oh, sure. The New York, the New York Mets in popular culture, critical essays, David Krell, editor. Go to Amazon. You can get it from the McFarland website as well. But I think people are probably used to getting it on Amazon. And uh, check it out. You'll you'll be pleasantly surprised. There are uh, surprises in, in every essay and nearly on every page. He's being humble. You're going to be thoroughly entertained. I promise you. <laughs> Absolutely, everybody. And Thank um, you. Mike, I'm I'm going to go to you uh, for for this first in terms of the playoffs because I unfortunately, after saying on on I think the last podcast that I was looking forward to watching it, I just haven't been able to. I, I just haven't been able to catch an inning. So catch us up to speed. What have you liked? What have you not liked? 
uh, you know, about this unprecedented uh, uh, playoff system. Well, you have some new, you have some old. Uh, we'll pick up with the ALDS. Tampa Bay defeated the Yankees, as we know locally around town. Uh, no, not really. Uh, Rays were AL East champs, and uh, they did what they were supposed to, defeat the Yankees. Uh, Houston defeated, defeated Oakland. So Tampa Bay and Houston are, uh, they'll be, as a matter of fact, excuse me, they're facing off as we speak. Uh, interesting series there. Very interesting series. In the National League, L.A. defeated San Diego. Uh, tempers flared. A lot of F-bombs, this, that, and the other. A lot of drama on TV. Uh, Much-needed much needed showcase for baseball uh, leading in to the NLCS and ALCS. Uh, and, uh, of course, Atlanta defeated Miami. Miami was the surprise showing in the playoffs. Congratulations to them. Derek Jeter and his ownership group, they just completely gutted that organization, and I guess the fruits of their labor are starting to shine through, uh, but they have a lot of work ahead of them. I just want to make a little editorial note on the American League and the National League Central divisions. They're garbage, <laughs> and the playoffs only proved that. So there you go. The final four, Tampa Bay versus Houston, L.A. versus Atlanta. Uh, no real surprises outside of Tampa, you know, eliminating the Yankees, but everything else pretty much, you know, followed in accordance with our expectations. Oakland, uh, the authors of Moneyball, you know, put that in quotations. Where has that gotten them so far? They always seem to fall short at the end. So uh, take it away, Sam. There's your update. Well, that's, that's a good point, you know, is how do you get over the edge? Uh, Sandy Alderson has been able to a couple times in his, his career, um, or really, I guess, once, come to think of it. Uh, but, David, without tangenting yes, uh, uh have you been watching any of these playoffs? Not really. I've been focused on doing some marketing for the book and working on some other writing projects. So I haven't really had a chance to sit down and watch the games as much as I would have liked. Mike, they, they took what away for the playoffs? Uh, it, was it the runner on second? Uh, I'm not aware of that. You know, I, I heard something to that effect. I'm not educated on that fact. I don't know what they did. But that's another reason it's tough to watch all these rule rule changes. It's it's not even the same game. If you yes. so start let's go with, down that road. A, yeah, go ahead. No, I was going to say, let's go down that road real quick. Uh, Mike, the numbers in terms of television viewers have the number – I think they were – you know, obviously this is COVID-related, everybody's at home – and were craving sports, realized how much they missed sports and that they didn't want to take it for granted, I think, in many ways. But it, it shot up like 64% with young viewers or something. I, I'm going to have to pull the numbers up exactly. But do you think that COVID's the only reason why uh, uh, baseball got more young people finally tuning in? Or what, what do you think their strategy's changing going for the better what what is what is your opinion about what the the television ratings looked like in terms of this baseball this this crazy uh uh you know confluence of of things happening for baseball uh covid certainly had something to do with this everyone's home you know so uh tv viewing habits will change 
On the other hand, right now baseball has the game to themselves. Hockey and basketball are not gearing up for their season. They just concluded their seasons and may not crank it up again till New Year's. Uh, I think one of the sports, I think the NBA is talking about Martin Luther King Day. So right now, baseball has the stage all to themselves outside of Sunday and football and Monday and what's becoming the new norm, Tuesday night football. So I, I think the fact that, you know, people are starving for sports and where normally hockey and basketball would be cranking up right about now uh, with preseason uh, and leading up to opening day and opening nights, that has something to do with it as well. Uh, I'm not so sure rule changes have changed or inspired anybody's viewing habits. I think that might be farthest from the truth. I think there's just other extenuating circumstances that might have pumped these ratings up just a bit. Uh, but a lot of that has to do with being home. Don't forget, everyone's home. Yeah. Everyone is home. Right. Parents, grandparents, children. You know, so there's a collective effort, perhaps, in the living room, family entertainment. And I'm sure at some point, families split apart and go their separate ways and are watching their own individual interests. So there's nothing about 2020 that I'm willing to say with any kind of certainty. I I think I speak for the three of us. I was just going to say, David, before you uh, insert your opinion about everything, I just wanted to read this from Yahoo Sports. MLB ratings have jumped up 4% over that period. That figure is being driven by an increase in viewership from women and younger audiences, according to Nielsen. And then Nielsen has a little thing. Uh, in the key local selling demo of persons 25, uh, 25 to 54, excuse me, we see another uh, positive female story with females 25 to 54 viewing gains of 15% going from 341,000 to 393,000 viewers, Nielsen said. Thinking about the composition of MLB regular season viewers, Again, comparing the first 14 days of this season to the same 14-day period last year in March and April, females 18 to 54 made up 14% of all persons watching MLB games this year. This year, that demo for this comparison period makes up almost 16%. Overall, younger people, persons under uh, 55, ages 55, have gone from 44.1% of the audience in 2019 to 47.1% in 2020. So, and ratings, and this is separate from the Nielsen quote, ratings, however, are down by seven uh, among uh, men, uh, seven people, it it was written weirdly, among men 55 plus. So, David, take it away. Not once in that declaration do they mention the broadcast time of the game. Everybody's home. Some of these games are in the afternoon so kids can watch people can watch at home you can't watch in a normal even now with covid you still have work to do during the day and at night you have family time you have other things and sometimes the games start too late and you may catch a few innings if the game is on at two or three or four o'clock you can pretty much watch the whole game so it's not a 
flat line. You know, there, it's not a, oh, we were at 10% last year and we're at 15% this year. That's a total anomaly, especially because of the time of the game. And maybe this is saying to them, well, maybe we should start games at 3 o'clock when kids come home from school or 4 o'clock. Maybe we shouldn't have every game at 7 o'clock or 7.10 or 7.30, whenever. I mean, that, that's how you is. had the youth back in the day that, that, you know, we talk about when we, we talk about the Brooklyn Dodgers, which is another book you did. Uh, you know, that, that was a big part of it was that they were kind of like on their edge of their seat because it was a two, two or three o'clock game and they wanted to get out of school and see if they could get in. Right. Right. And everything has become so money conscious that you sacrifice losing some of the magic. And we've talked about this before. You you can't sacrifice the romance, the history, the lore, the, the X factor, whatever the term is that you want to use. When you're, when you're just adhering only to the bottom line without looking at the growth and the continuation of the love of the sport, that bottom line is going to decrease as time goes on because it just cannot be sustained if future generations look to other sports, other areas of entertainment. And as someone who used to work in television ratings, I can tell you, yes, it's an anomaly. When there's a blizzard, everybody's ratings go up, and the advertisers know it, the producers know it, the TV stations know it, it's just the way it is. Now, will this continue in 2021? We have no idea. We have no way of knowing if we'll still be stuck in our homes in the spring of 2021. And you're talking about the playoffs, and I'm thinking, oh, gee, uh, it's playoff time already? I, I, because you usually have six months of a buildup to this point. Right. And it happens so fast that I, I can't even believe it's the fifth week or is it the sixth week of the NFL. There's so many things dominating our attention that this year has been a total write-off in a lot of ways, uh, for at least for me, regarding watching sports because we're dominated by the political coverage. That's a, a nightly, if not hourly, soap opera. We're leading into an election. We're leading into a Supreme Court nomination and the hearing. So it's hard to sit down and kind of decompress to watch three hours of a, of a baseball game anymore. And I, that's just me well, personally. My, I don't, I, but I know, it's, I know right. it's a sentiment shared by, by a lot of friends of mine. Mike, you know, I'll tell you this, you know, just from driving Lyft around multiple states, um, I, I see people playing baseball. I see kids playing baseball. Uh, they're getting these little league games in. So maybe, uh, you know, I, I don't, I don't want to be sensational about both. I, I don't want to – I basically want to be as impartial as possible, but I think there's still plenty of people playing baseball right now. I don't know how to answer that. Uh I guess it depends where, uh, and that in and in of itself, uh, I would argue. I don't, I don't know. I don't know who's making these decisions and potentially putting kids in harm's way. I, I, I don't know. 
I don't know what leagues are in operation. I don't know what leagues aren't. I coach for 10 years. Uh, I know what's going on locally. That's nothing. So I can't speak outside the city. And you are roaming uh, all over the place. And, hey, you see what you see. I can't speak to it in their own decisions for the, for yeah. the better or worse. Yeah. I can't. I can't speak to that. One thing I'll, I'll throw in back into the TV conversation very quickly. Here's one little case. For instance, my wife is working from home. She keeps the TV on with the sound off in the background. And when it's time for all my children to come on, well, guess what interrupts that on Channel 7? Baseball. There's another reason why perhaps you might have, uh, you know, I'm not trying to stereo, but, you know, here's an instance where my wife is home and she's watching a baseball game she watches baseball, but she wouldn't have been watching that game. But that's how it used to be. We used to have World Series games in the afternoon. True. And True. not, I mean, it was a long time ago. In my I, mind, it was, I think in 1980, it was back. not that long ago. But they, they I, I remember I they coming home from school. Back. Well, they won't I mean, like, if you, if you the, did it at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, you would have all of America's attention, I think. It doesn't matter. They won't the do it. They won't do it because like, of the money. They won't do it because of the money. There's too much money. By eight o'clock, the East Coast and but most you can of the get Midwest two games home. in. The weekend games. The weekend games could certainly, I think, you could justify any Saturday and Sunday games being at four o'clock in the afternoon. And if plus, you, you add the shadow, which which adds a little intrigue with how everything's going to go. If you have double headers on the weekends, and we if we have more of them, we wouldn't have the World Series in November. They're not going to do double headers because it's not effective for the bottom line. Maybe it'll be once or twice, but we used to have them a heck of a lot. So I think this is a chance for Major League Baseball to take a step back and do a reset. Do we really want to start a tenth inning with a man on second? Is is that really where we want the sport to go? What are these rule changes? Why are we doing them? They're doing them because the games take too long. Well, they take too long because strategies have changed. Because you can see two or three relief pitchers in a in an inning. Now they're saying, well, we don't want that. So now they're limiting uh, the 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 strategy or the options for a manager. Now I hear talk, and, and I think we had talked about it before, about outlawing the shift. Well, the shift is nothing new. I mean, that goes back to Lou Boudreau and the Cleveland Indians yeah. in the 40s, and maybe even before, but the, the story I learned was that he invented it, and it was called the Boudreau shift. That could be folklore, but it's nothing new. How can you dictate to a manager where to put his players? That There's something just very odd about that. You wouldn't say that in any other sport. You wouldn't say to the NHL coaches, you can only have your, your defenseman here and you can only have your goalie here. He can't go so far outside. This guy can only go 10 feet this way and 10 feet that way. You, you, can't, you, you just can't do that in any other sport. Why should we even entertain that thought? In baseball, that that goes down a very very slippery slope, and I just fear that d 
doing something for convenience is never a good idea. And one of the things that that really causes the games to be longer, watch a game from 1980, 78, 75. Tell me how many times the batter steps outside the batter's box and adjusts his batting gloves. Zero. Zero. And if the batter steps out for four seconds and does that, those four seconds add up. If it's four seconds well, and, between and every pitch, like When you think about it, when you think about it, too, they didn't actually have batting gloves. They were doing it like, you know, bare brawn men. <laughs> Not to take I, away from... Any anything you know uh, of this day and age, but but you do think about that. That that's a big part of it is that all these little you know intricate. You got to adjust. Sometimes you got to even not only adjust your your gloves, you have to adjust your your gear that's protecting your elbow. Right, and as much as Major League Baseball will say they want the games to be shorter, a hundred years ago games lasted two hours. Sometimes 90 minutes. I've done articles about games from 100 years ago, and you look at the length of time, hour 30, hour 40, hour 50. Can you imagine if a World Series game was an hour and 40 minutes? I don't think the the network executives would like that too much. They have to get the advertising That's a good point, too. I mean, that's a good point, too. I mean, how, that, how far, that, you, you know, know... They need them to well, be how long, Well, to, to, to uh, you know, borrow a title from a Partridge Family song, how long is too long? They say the games are too long. Well, if the average game is three hours and... Let's say it's three hours and nine minutes, and they say that's too long. Okay, well, what's not too long? Is it three hours? Is it two hours and 50? Is it two hours and 40? Is it two hours and 56 minutes and 30 seconds? What? Where's the barometer? What are they trying to achieve? And I, I just fear that too many rule changes for convenience is just not going to be good. I could be wrong. I mean, look, we, we just lost Bob Gibson. It's because of Bob Gibson in 1968 that they lowered the pitching mound. I, I, am I right about that, Mike? I think I'm right about that. Yes. Uh, he was the impetus behind More it, but right. the fact of the matter is the league ERA was at an all-time low. Right. So we have so, – like, he, he pushed it. He pushed the ERA. I mean, uh, I'm pretty sure if uh, – correct me if I'm wrong. It was 1.12 that year. Right. Right. So we also had the introduction of the DH, and that was controversial. But we live with it, and – it's become a part of the American League. It might become a part of the National League someday. So it's not like baseball is totally at a, uh, you know, it, it, the rules are not set in stone. They can be adjusted. I, I, I always think of this Oliver Wendell Holmes quote from my law school days, the law should be stable but never stand still. And I think that's, a good barometer for baseball. Mike, uh, I want you to go with that. And and ladies and gentlemen, since we're at the uh, we're, we're we've gotten to a half hour, you've been listening to a Mentian podcast. 
uh, beautiful that you are. Mike, take it away. I can't add much more. Uh, you watch an old game, watch any game on YouTube. Watch the pace of the game. The pitchers are always ready to pitch. The batters are always, yeah. always ready to hit. There's the majority of wasted time right there, you know, and, and capitalism, tighten up the time between between innings. Right. Tighten that up. Tighten it up. See, but they won't. And, and they used to do so, such a good job of, of advertising during the game, having sponsors that were taking care of everything. Like, like, you see, but what is, they're not going to, and, that, and, that, they're not and gonna that's going to relinquish one, one message for job. the other. If they can do both, they're going to do both. Right. So if they can and make pitches why during I action, they're going to do that. If they're going to make pitches between innings, they're going to do that. Right. You know, and, so. Like, like, I, and thinking, think, thinking real quick that just, just to say how good our TV guys are is that they're able to incorporate that while having the banter still going when like a truck all of a sudden comes off, you know, in between a pitch and Keith has to say something about it. Like at least you have that, but you're, you know, it, it, that's the disconnect. And is it the consumer? David, I'll go to you on this one. Is it the consumer or is it the product? Who is at fault here? Well, I I wouldn't use the word at fault. I would use the word responsibility, and it's always the the producer of the service or good, and you have to adjust to the consumer. If something you do is a you know something you put out there is a good product or service, but the public isn't buying it, there might be a reason. It could be inconvenience. It could be cost. Uh, it, it could be something else might seem better but isn't i mean look at uh you know michael remember the 80s where we had vhs versus betamax betamax tapes were clearly superior and mm-hmm. not only that they fit better on the shelf they weren't these clunky things that the, the vhs tapes were clunky that's the only way to describe them. they they were they were like the size of a of a small book and for whatever reason VHS dominated beta in the market. And by the mid-'80s, you didn't know anyone who had a beta recorder. Uh, it might have been big in the late-'70s, but by the mid-'80s, nobody had, nobody had a Betamax recorder. Everyone had the VCRs. So it's sure. the same kind of a thing. People have to a- adjust to the, you know, to the marketplace, to current events, to what's going on. I mean, we've had to do it for the past six or seven month, months, um, you know, it's funny. If you look at – this is an example I, I, I used with someone recently. If you look at Tom Seaver in 1969, he pitched 18 complete games. That wasn't even enough to be the leader in the National League that season. Gibson had 28 complete games. Clayton Kershaw had six complete games in 2014, and that led the major leagues. Pitchers don't go the full nine anymore. Because coaches are wary, they want to protect the pitcher's arms, and the pitchers just don't have the opportunities to go nine innings anymore. So that part of the game has has changed dramatically. But at the end of the day, you do have to respect the consumer because it's the, the consumer who's not only buying tickets, but watching the game on television, buying the jerseys, buying the soda, buying the hot dog, buying the beer, 
going on road trips maybe to see the team in another city. Mm -hmm. And at a certain point, it's going to become too difficult. Nothing kills excitement more than just a lackadaisical attitude. Not a negative attitude, but a lackadaisical attitude. And it's palpable. And maybe some of that is because of what's going on in the – you know, in the culture now with COVID and people being home. One of the things that I've been hearing about the book is that it's such a, uh, it's such a refresher because it, it's a nostalgia piece. These essays bring you back, like Mike was talking to me before the show, it brings you back to a certain time. And I think baseball books, by and large, do that. If you're reading Reggie Jackson's autobiography, it takes you back to the 70s. It takes you back to that time where he was fighting with Billy Martin and he came to the Yankees and he hit the three home runs in one World Series game and you had the Reggie bar. It puts a smile on your face. It puts a smile on your face. And I think we're looking for that romance and that nostalgia as an escape during this crisis is the only way we can describe it because it's been going on now for seven months. Sam, the only thing I'd add to David's mm-hmm. point about the product versus the consumer is analytics. Now, if applied properly, they have value. Uh, I'm not here to, you know, bash on al- analytics, but whereas they call boxing the sweet science, analytics is turning into the silly science, and the game is Boring because of it. Boring. And therein lies a, a large problem with Manfred's product. And, you know, I, I refer to him as the Phantom Menace of baseball. So, Well, ho- hopefully they'll do, <laughs> ho- hopefully they'll do focus groups of fans and get a real cross-section of what fans want. What will make it easier for the fan to spend money at the ballpark? What will make it easier for a fan to watch the game on television? Because even that's getting a little bit crowded. Do we need a 45-minute pregame show? I guess we do for the World Series. But that means that the first pitch will be later and later. And if you, have a, if you get to a point where kids can't watch any of the game or maybe they can watch half of it because they have homework and they have curfews and, you know, a nine-year-old kid, it's not going to stay up till 11 o'clock at night. It's just not going to happen. You know know what, David? We watched an entire generation, an entire generation be ignored by baseball throughout the 90s. That whole span... An entire generation was ignored. If you were Gen X, you were cool. You know, you went to bed late, you got up early, and you shrugged to work, and that was that. Same thing with boomers. But the next generation, my son included, uh, not a chance. These games were ending, as David says, 1.30, 2 o'clock in the morning. There was, you know, there's one game specifically when I go down this path that I bring up, and that's the game, I believe it was against the Braves and the Pirates, and, and Sid Bream was running home, and he was safe to win the series for the Braves. I fell asleep that night. 
And it wasn't until yeah. I was on the train the next day going to work that I saw the back page of somebody else's newspaper. And that's how I found out the Braves won. Right. Too late for me. What about my children? What about everyone, everybody else's children? A whole, David, we watched a whole generation be excluded from the glory of postseason baseball, much less regular season baseball. Well, one of the things that I try to do and I continue to try to do at the Society for American Baseball Research in the northern New Jersey chapter is figure out a way to expand our membership. We need more women, more minorities, and more people under 40 because you cannot survive as an organization without expanding. And it's a, it's a double burden because of what you said. How, how will you get younger people if they've been ignored or they haven't, or you just took it as a given that they would be interested? But as your entertainment options expanded, well, that made it more difficult for these sports to compete. And it's a lot easier to do a fantasy football league with 16 games than a baseball fantasy league with 162. But I just hope that there's a a reset and a calculation of what does the sport mean? What are they have to do a SWOT analysis, strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. And I don't think people focus on the opportunities. And there, there are several opportunities here. But we have to get back to what I said on the last podcast, get back to the basics. What does the sport mean? What does the team mean to a city? Business-wise, reputation-wise, identity-wise, geographic, um, you know, trademark, intellectual property. Take everything that that team represents and do a top-down study in each market. And let's see if we can find common threads and expand on that. I don't and, know if they will or won't, but I, ho- I, I hope that they do. This is a wonderful sport. There's no sport that has the tradition, that has the richness of tradition, lore, mystery, myth, biography. Hmm. I, I mean, everything that goes on in society can be found on a tangent to baseball. And I'll give you one quick example. Mm-hmm. A couple of years ago, I was at the Cooperstown Symposium on Baseball and American Culture, and they have a group of interns called the Steel Interns, named after somebody named Steel. And they do a terrific job really helping sort through materials and archiving and so forth. So I saw a young woman with a pad and pen and she was taking notes at one of the exhibits and I could tell because of the type of shirt she was wearing she was an intern so I said oh you're one of the steel interns aren't you she said yes I said you know I'm, I'm speaking at the symposium I'm just curious what are you writing down she said well um, I'm archiving this exhibit I said also oh, what's your interest in, in baseball what's your discipline she said well I'm not really interested in baseball but I'm doing a thesis on 19th century flannels I'm a fashion major, and I'm researching (laughs) the use of uniforms in baseball during that time period. I said, that's the best story I've ever heard. That's the best example I've ever heard of how baseball 
can touch every single academic discipline, professional discipline, and we need more of that. We need more of those people writing articles, writing essays, writing books, giving presentations, doing podcast interviews to expand the sport. If we don't tap into that, where where are we in 2040? 2030? You know, Mike, I got to throw the script out, as you always say. (laughs) Like, where are we uh, then? And and let's tie this in to the fact that we're about to have, hopefully, we, we are about to have a new generation of 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 owners that are shaping the the world of baseball. And and with Steve Cohen coming in, being as avid of a fan as as, as we've been made to seem uh, that that he is, uh, where does this go for the next? Uh, 10, 20 years? Great question. I know Steve Cohen is going to come in and he's going to revitalize the fan base. There's no doubt about that. We're already excited. In fact, we're impatient. Has he approved yet? No, not yet? Oh. We'll just have to wait another day. But uh, I, I, I think that you'll see uh, a restoration of the things that made us Mets fans in the first place. I think you'll see a restoration of Banner Day. I think you'll see the Seaver statue followed by a Joan Payson statue. I wouldn't be surprised to see the team push for Joan Payson to be inducted into the Hall of Fame. I think they might even bring back Homer the Dog. Homer the Dog was a... Homer the Beagle was a... Uh, the mascot in the first year for the Mets. So let's mm. let's bring back a. Beagle You're probably not allowed to do that. Named Homer. You're probably not allowed to do that anymore. Oh, okay. Well, then we'll make him. No, I'm, 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 I'm just I'm just speculating. I'm only speculating. It's possible, but then let's do an anthropomorphic Homer. <laughs> you know, every every other team. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Look. Uh, you know, don't don't Mr. and Mrs. Met need a pet? Don't they need a pet dog? <laughs> yes. I mean, but Milwaukee has idea. Bernie the Brewer. Milwaukee has Bernie the Brewer. Why shouldn't why shouldn't we have an extra one? And that can add to the bottom line, but it's also a hearkening back to history. Mike, how can we get this podcast to Steve Cohen's desk? To his email. Is it? Do you think it's as simple as Steve Cohen at whatever the company is called dot com? Uh, I'm sure a little bit of homework, and we'll get to the bottom of that. Yeah. But uh, you know, <laughs> most importantly, most importantly, he's a fan, yeah. and he's a fan of a certain age. Yeah. And as David says, I'm sure, I'm confident that he's going to come in, and and turn our ballpark into a shrine for the Mets as best he can without destroying the Like, side. that's the problem, too, is structure. It's structure. Like, and, and think, of, think well, about from, like, think about the walls. The fact that they tried to, they, they were like, all right, we got it wrong. Two years later, or not two years later, but, but three years later, we're going to have to change some stuff. Uh, but they can't even do much because they, like, the walls were so ingrained 
in the foundation of City Field, they couldn't even do much because of structural issues. This is how well, insane the whole thing is. Uh, you know what? I'm sure he's going to have people study the viability of modifications. Uh, again, he's a he's a fan, and we as a fan base have somebody coming in onto the scene who has met fandom sensibilities and, and a connection to this ball club's history as a fan, as a passionate fan, uh, something that the outgoing ownership did not. We know where their passions lied, and they failed. They failed miserably. Let us not forget, there was no Hall of Fame, Mets Hall of Fame, in the building in 2009. That's criminal in a baseball sense. Right. But that's criminal. So I, we have somebody who's coming in on the scene. We know him to be a fan, and, and I'm sure he's just as upset that when you look around okay. baseball yeah. and you look around ballparks in other cities, how their teams are celebrated. And the fact that the Mets go under-celebrated, unrepresented in their own building, shadowed by some other team's legacy. We have somebody coming in on the scene who I'm sure originally was astonished by all this, who might be embarrassed by it all, and who has the wherewithal to come in and try to change it. So let's even remember, let's just, you know, go back a little bit. The fact is, is that because of Madoff, I'm pretty sure they had something crazy like 99%, meaning they didn't even have 100%, but they basically did. Uh, And then because of Madoff, they had to sell a few shares. First, they thought they were going to go in with David Einhorn. uh, But at some point, they realized they couldn't, and they had to go. They had to divvy it up amongst, I think, t- only twenty percent, to the point that Steve Cohen probably has a sizable chunk of that twenty percent, considering that he had eight percent of the team before this particular thing. And that you know, Bill Maher has a, a piece, but I'm not sure exactly how big that piece was. David, maybe you can speak a little bit better to this. Mike, you know the the, the way the whole Wilpon thing uh, breaks down. Uh, uh, but I'll go to Scar- you first, David, with this. Scaramucci oh, yeah, go was ahead. a shareholder. No, Scaramucci I'll, I'll was a shareholder, exactly. Scaramucci was a shareholder, yeah. Right. So so I, I can't imagine that somebody has a bigger piece than 8%, meaning that Steve Cohen has been waiting in the wings as the biggest of these minorities after – the David Einhorn situation fell apart. Right. But part of that stock sale, those share sale, came out of Fred and Jeff's own pocket. They personally purchased shares as well. And then down the line, Fred attempted a buyback. The numbers weren't in his favor, but he conducted a buyback nonetheless. So we don't really know, after the original transactions and the original purchases, how much they may still own. Or at least, you know, people I follow and who have been on top of this haven't revealed that. And now I'm kind of curious how big Bill Maher's uh, stake is. And you know what, David, if if you have any insight, David, if you have any insight into this next question, the debt, what happens to the debt? Does Mr. Cohen assume the debt? 
Uh, does you know do the Wilpons pay it off with their incoming cash from sale of the team? How does that work? I have no well, yeah, idea. Whose who's name? Who whose names are on the debt though? Like, is it the Mets I, or the Wilpons or Sterling? I have I have no idea, and I don't think we're going to know. I think that's probably confidential, and we just have no way of of discerning that, discerning how much or what the terms are. I think we'll get a bare bones press release, and that'll be that, and we'll have to be satisfied with that. Yeah, and uh, there's, I think in all of these uh, uh, articles, there's not really like a, an official, this is how much I have in terms of Bill Maher. But yeah, you know, it's it's just, it's very interesting. This is why this podcast has almost gone an hour and, uh, you know, we, we, we still have a, some history to get to because it, it's, this is just, what happens, this conversation that we love to have about baseball can go so many different directions. And, Mike, before we move on to the history, and then I'll go to you, Dave, but first, Mike, is there anything else you want to bring up regarding everything we've talked about over the last hour? No, no, I'm copacetic. You know, I'm, a, I'm up to speed. I will just make one, one more mention of Mr. Krell's book, uh, I, w- I was able to skim through the whole thing, and I plan to make another pass to really absorb it in detail. Uh, but like I say, such an enjoyable read, and, and things you. that you just don't come across in your ordinary research. Go out yeah. there, buy it. You won't be sorry. Thank you. You're welcome, sir. Excellent. And David, is there anything else you'd like to add to that? Just pray, relax, find your joys and pleasures where you can. Hopefully we'll all get through this during the winter and maybe 2021 will look better. Maybe we'll get back to some sense of normalcy in 2021. We can only hope because this this year has been anything but normal. Here, here. That is for sure. And without further ado... Uh, we will go to our history portion of a Metzian podcast. We are both looking at the uniform number. Uh, this is episode number 66, so that is going to coincide with the uniform number 66, as well as the 1966 Mets, and that is where we're going to start. This is a line of demarcation as we were, were talking before we came on air, guys. Um, and, and, David, I'm going to start with you since you've just been analyzing Mets history so much lately. Uh, what is it about the 1966 Mets season as, as I pull uh, this, this schedule up and see how these guys fared as, as, you know, the year before the franchise arrived? Well, I think that's exactly right. This is the last year before Tom Seaver. So this is the last year before they turned the corner. And no longer would Mets fans be using phrases like lovable losers. Um, the novelty had worn off, I think, by then, according to people with whom I spoke who were there at the time. The novelty of being lovable losers and not finishing you know, in the top half of the division. 
and Tom Seaver changed all that. And then Gil Hodges really, really changed it to the extent where he basically told the press, I'm sick of that phrase, lovable losers. There's nothing lovable about about losing. We're professionals. And, and he really took that team to a different level, obviously, in 69. Uh, Mike, before I go to you, I mean, you look at it just at first glance. 1966 is the first year uh, that the Mets did not lose 100 games. They had a record of 66 and 95, and they finished ninth in the National League, which I believe is not last in the National League at the time. Uh, and it was not. Uh, uh, Go ahead, continue. No, I was going to finish with the fact that you had Jerry Grody, Ed Cranepool, who had been around for a long time, but you had Ron Hunt, Ron Swoboda, Cleon Jones was already on this team, Bud Harrelson, Jim Hickman, um, uh, of course Tug McGraw, and Nolan Ryan. Uh, and and it's interesting buried in here also is Dallas Green, and I got to take a look at da- Dallas Green. But this 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 is a very interesting year. They lost a hundred games in Tom Seaver's first year in 1967 and obviously we'll go more into that on the 67th episode but this is a very interesting intersection of Mets baseball 1966 well you stole some of my thunder it's 1966 and they already have eight players who would play for the 69 champions you got to remember they're an expansion club they don't even have a minor league system so they need to get that in running you know, before the major league club is going to improve, uh, free agency does not rule the day yet. You know, so they had to work incrementally to even get to this point. 1966, if you want to keep it in context, is still a 25-game improvement from 62. You know, so look at it that way, Met fans. But the farm system needed to be developed. And here we are. You know, four years into this, 62, 3, 4, and 5, here we are in 66, and you're starting to see guys on the rise. As you mentioned, uh, Sam, we have Grody, we have Cranepool, we have Ken Boyer, we have Schroeder and, and Cleon Jones and, and McGraw, and as you say, Nolan Ryan. And as David says, you know, the team is on the cusp of making – a change. This is West Western's last season as general manager. The following season, I believe it's the following season. George Weiss, you mean, uh, right? Say again? George George Weiss was the general manager in 66, well, according to baseball records. George Weiss is the, the manager, manager right now. As a manager. He, he's the general manager right now. West Western is the manager. But my point is, right. next season in 67, Bing Devine takes over, you know, and that's a major step forward, in my opinion, for this organization and so far as the front office. So, yeah, 1966 is that, you know, that teetering point, and you can see the progress. uh, They see it in front of their eyes. It's starting to mature. It's starting to come together. It's in the early stages, but I think 66 above all the other years, starts, you know, the Mets organization starts to gain some clarity into the future. David, you know, what's so interesting about this is, is it's also a good, it, it just, it, it 
anybody wondering how good the Mets were doing being lovable losers at the time. They were second of 10 in the National League at 1.9 million attendance. Right. Uh, I, I'm not exactly sure who the number one was. I'm going to try to dig into that, but that's something that's very interesting. If you can speak to your research, what that spoke to in terms of how much baseball, like, like, like how, one, how the divide between the Yankees and the rest of New York baseball fans um, that just could not live in a one team town without, without another option. Well, when the Dodgers and Giants left, the Yankees had four years where they were the only game in town. And when the Mets came in, I guess it was announced in 60 when the Continental League folded. It never got off the ground, and they joined forces, so to speak. So there would be four teams coming into the major leagues, and, of course, New York was one and Houston was the other. People were excited, and I think a big reason was because you would now see those National League icons that used to play at Ebbets Field and the Polo Grounds. They'd be coming back on road trips. So you would see Sandy Koufax in person, Don Drysdale, Willie Mays, and so forth. So that was a big reason for the excitement surrounding the Mets. As time went on, as you alluded to in Mad Men and other movies and television shows of you know depicting the 60s the odd couple there was a, the odd couple there was a certain cultural resonance oh. about the team i mean that was seen in the in the movie the odd couple uh, where oscar madison misses the triple play and i don't know if it was deliberate that it was the mets maybe that was when they were going to film the scene and they had to pick the Yankees or the Mets and the Mets happened to be in a series at Shea Stadium that day, who knows? The, the bottom line is that it happened. And it's a part of Mets lore. It's a part of Mets history. And I think the Mets continued that fandom, so to speak. I mean, Michael tell you, there are fans of the Dodgers and Giants who never followed the game again, at least not to the same degree, once the move happened, teams left. <laughs> Even with the Mets, it was never the, never the same. But then there are people who said, well, you know what? National League Baseball is back, and, you know, they have the NY. That's the Giants, the blue for mm-hmm. Dodgers, the orange for Giants. So there's an homage there. And I'll follow the team. And this it's the New York Colors. It's the New York Colors, too, is orange and And it's the New York skyline, and, and it's um, – you know, in the, in the logo. So I think there are a lot of reasons, cultural and otherwise, that the Mets were able to reach out to that fan base and secure it. And there's no doubt when you go to a game, you see uh, parents and grandparents, and, you know, you're you're a fan because your parents were fans or your grandparents were fans. Um, I hope that continues. We talked very long about why it might not, and the dangers of it not continuing. I hope that it does. And maybe this Cohen ownership will revive some of that history and, and bring us full circle. And I, I think this is a perfect time. Uh, you know, People are mm-hmm. doing a lot of soul-searching in the last six months, and they're finding comfort food 
in the silliest of things, uh, whether it's reruns from when they were a kid, board games, jigsaw puzzles were flying off the shelves or at least out of uh, out of Amazon. I mean, you went you went to some of these websites for the jigsaw puzzle companies; they were sold out. So people were getting back to basics, and I think that will continue. Right. So. Although this does have to do with our next episode, technically, um, I was looking up The Odd Couple, and the scene at Shea Stadium, which also features Haywood Hale Brune, which Mm -hmm. I I, I have to see why that was a reference, Um, it was filmed right before a real game between the New York Mets and the Pittsburgh Pirates on June 27, 1967. Roberto Clemente was asked to hit into a triple play that Oscar misses, but he refuses to do it, and Bill Mazeroski took his place. Mike, take it right. Away. <laughs> I'll pass. No, that, that's a great one. I'll pass. <laughs> it's a great um, scene, and in the yeah. pre- in the press box, it is great. You, all, all of those writers were the those were the real reporters. Those were the real reporters. Yeah, yeah, no, following it, it, the yeah, game. Walter, Walter Matthau is the only thing out of, of place there. <laughs> right, and so it's a bit of, as my high school English teacher would say, it's a bit of verisimilitude, where he's in the press box with these real reporters, and it makes you believe that much more that he's a New York sports writer. Exactly. And and it's it's great that the Mets have this excellent pop culture tie-in that we – will be getting from your book and, and uh, yes. urge everybody out there to, to go ahead with it. And um, let's, let's move on with our historical talk, which is not going to last too much longer considering Josh Edgen was the first player in New York Mets history to wear number 66, followed by Ty Kelly once upon a time in 2018 <laughs> and Franklin Killamay this year. So, Mike, I'll, I'll pass it on to you. Not much there, but I will say this about Josh Edgen. I once watched him with two outs in uh, uh, 2012, walk Chase Utley, only to give up a game, a go-ahead home run that they ended up winning to Philadelphia right behind home plate in the comfort seats uh, uh, <laughs> in 2012. As it was, it was one of those games in the second half that – uh, uh, you know, they should have won, but was an indication why 2012 started out as a championship year but became 1962, <laughs> where they were just ever so close all the time. And uh, that's just how it went. That That is my biggest Josh Edgen memory. He did have some good pitches, some, some good pitching and good pitches at certain points, but that will all be my all-time Josh Edgen memory is him not getting the save in that game. Josh Edgen was a tough luck loogie, you know, lefty one-out specialist. He had a damn good season in 2014, man. You know, now we're talking about limited innings pitched. He never surpassed, except in 2017, 30 innings pitched. But, you know, he posted a 132 ERA, and then what happens? The obligatory Tommy John surgery. Wipes out his 15th season, and you could see him struggle in 2016 with an ERA above five. 
And then in 17, that number comes down again. And then he's out of baseball. Uh, tough luck, Loogie. I remember writing about him and being a supporter of his when we were at Rising Apple, Sam. Uh, that's what I remember about Josh Edgen, just being a tough luck loogie. And then uh, we have Ty Kelly on this list. He had a lot of supporters. I wasn't one of them. I just don't see it. Maybe you guys saw something else. I didn't. So I'll pass it to you guys. David, do you have anything about those uh, those names there? No, but I do have one bit of trivia about 66, and this is covered in the New York Mets and Popular Culture book. 1966 was a very significant year in American pop culture. In January, Batman premiered, and it became a national sensation. Adam West, Burt Ward, and then you had these wonderful actors playing the villain of the week. Cesar Romero as the Joker, Julie Newmar as Catwoman, Burgess Meredith, Burgess Meredith as the Penguin, and so on. Frank Gorshin played the Riddler. Well, in June of 1966, there was a concert, so-called, featuring Adam West and Frank Gorshin as Batman and the Riddler at Shea Stadium. <laughs> Excellent. That is such a perfect way to wrap up a Metzian podcast before our final word. And first of all, David, before I pass it to you first for your final word, thank you for joining us and tell thank everybody you. where they can find you. Uh, yeah. Tell everybody where they can find you and where they can get this book. They can get the book at Amazon, the New York Mets in popular culture, and they can reach me through my website, davidkrell.com, K-R-E-L-L. Perfect. Mike, your last word. Let's go Mets. Not much going on, uh, but I think we all feel that better days are ahead. So we just have to wait out the process. Hopefully MLB owners approve Steve Cohen. No hitches, no glitches. And uh, we can move on and have a reasonable offseason. I'm not looking for much, but, you know, I'm looking for forward in the right direction. So let's be patient. Let's go Mets. I, I have no qualms right now. That is excellent. And ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining us on the Mets Scene Podcast. Uh, we are so thankful you do each and every week. And um, I, I can only say last word is anticipation. I, uh, hopefully, we, hopefully we will all get delivered the great news that Steve Cohen has been approved by the major league owners. And uh, we, we surely am, are sitting on the edge of our seats waiting for it. So everybody out there, enjoy the playoffs. Enjoy, enjoy the foliage if you're around it. And uh, the only way to finish this is let's go Mets. Thank you all for joining us. David, thank you so much. Mike, have a good one. Thank you, guys. Good night, everybody. Thank you, David. Let's go Mets.